Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional territories of the Coast Salish people. The country's heart is breaking for the people of Lalash, Saskatchewan today. There was a shooting in the community. Five people were killed. Two others are in critical condition. The situation is no longer active, and the suspected shooter has been taken into custody. I was immediately in touch with the Minister of Public Safety, the Honourable Ralph Goodale, and the Commissioner of the RCMP, Commissioner Bob Paulson, and I am being updated regularly. I have also spoken to the Premier of Saskatchewan, Brad Wall, the local MP, Georgina Jolibois, and the Mayor of La Loche, Kevin Janvier, to express both our sympathy and our support. I want to thank the first responders who have acted swiftly and bravely. We all grieve with and stand with the community of La Loche and all of Saskatchewan on this terrible, tragic day. Canada is not immune to school shootings. While they are often looked at as a problem in other countries, they still happen here. There have been eight shootings in school settings in Canada since 1975. In post-secondary institutions, we have suffered through the tragedies of École Polytechnique, Dawson College, the University of Alberta, and the Concordia University Massacre. In Canadian high schools, there have been four shooting sprees. In 1975, an armed 16-year-old student murdered three people and injured 13 others in Brampton, Ontario. Also in 1975, in Ottawa, an armed student entered a high school and killed three people while injuring five others. In 1999, a 14-year-old student in Tabor, Alberta, shot one person dead and injured another at his high school. But the deadliest shooting in Canadian history involving a high school occurred in a remote community in northwestern Saskatchewan in 2016. Tonight, we present the Lalosh shootings. And this is True North True Crime.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 41 of True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We want to start off by thanking some people who bought coffee for this episode. So a big shout out to Tracy B, Clint S, Kelly D, Carolyn M, Alberta, Sean D, and an anonymous donor. If you would like to buy us a coffee for an upcoming episode, you can do so by going to buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. If merchandise is more your vibe, you can pick up some True North True Crime sweaters, hoodies, t-shirts, and more at our Tee Public store. We will link that in our show notes as well. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode. So tonight we are talking about the Lalash shootings. This tragedy took place on January 22nd, 2016. As the six-year anniversary of this tragedy approaches, we thought it was in the public interest to cover this case. On January 22nd, 2016, a lone shooter took the lives of two of his family members. He then walked into his school armed with a gun. He killed two more people and injured seven others. This incident had a devastating effect on a small, rural community, and the impacts were felt all across the country. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles. We also used the 109-page sentencing document issued by the court. It should be noted that the person convicted of this crime was a youth at the time. However, they were tried as an adult. When they were in court, their name was protected under a publication ban. However, in April of 2020, he ran out of appeals. He is now 23 years old and has no avenues left for appeal, so a ban on publishing his identity is no longer in effect. We will be relying heavily on the court documents and the agreed-upon statement of facts. As such, the structure of this episode may be a little different than usual. We will warn you now that this episode has graphic depictions of gun violence that include medical reports. We ask that you use your discretion should you choose to continue listening to this episode. Joining me now by phone from Saskatoon is Clearwater River Dene National uh, Nation Chief Teddy Clark. Chief, um, I, I know you're in Saskatoon. What can you tell us about what's happened? Well, at this point in time, uh, there's been a lot of different stories uh, that are uh, are at play right now. Um, I first heard of this uh, uh, from my daughter, uh, which attends the school that the incident had uh, had occurred. Uh, by way of text, uh, telling me that dad there's been a shooting at the school, and uh, I immediately called her and said, uh, "Where are you?" And she said, "I'm at home." I said, "You stay home till we find out what's going on." Um, there's been a lot of different stories. The communities are both devastated. A lot of people are in shock. Um, right now, we are concentrating as much as we can, uh, trying to pull leadership together. And, uh, you know, the uh, crisis teams are being deployed. Um, like I said, it's not a very, very pretty scene right now. <laughs> like I said earlier to some of the other reporters, uh, I mentioned to them, I said, I'm not... Uh, uh, right now uh, won't be uh, disclosing any names whatsoever. 
um, but I know there are some casualties and uh, there are some uh, people that are in uh, critical condition that are being medevaced uh, to the nearest cities. Um, I would imagine uh, Fort, Fort McMurray or Saskatoon. Um, I'm just I've been on the phone steady with uh, with a lot of different people here from my hometown uh, and also the Lost and Clearwater. Um, so there's been a lot of different stories uh, coming in and out, a lot of unofficial stories as well. Uh, all I can say is that uh, you know we're just trying to pull together here and uh, make sense of all this. Lalash is a remote village in northwestern Saskatchewan. The area is part of Treaty 10 territory. The village of Lalash shares its southern border with the Clearwater River Dene Nation. In fact, when people speak of Lalash, they are usually referring to Clearwater as well, and vice versa. The combined population of both communities is about 3,600 people, with more than 90% of those citizens speaking Dene as the common language. Geographically, Lalosh is closer to Fort McMurray, Alberta, than it is to Saskatoon, which is over 600 kilometers to the south of Lalosh. Its unique, remote location makes it a service hub for mining and resource exploration industries. There is a stark beauty in northern Saskatchewan and a deep connection to the land, a land that can be bountiful and brutal. But there is a darkness in Lalosh and communities like it, a darkness that people have been sounding the alarm about for decades. An alarm that seemingly no one answered. Lalash has had a high suicide rate, especially amongst young people. One priest familiar with the area recalls that he presided over 20 funerals related to suicide during the course of one year. RCMP records indicate that in 2008, officers responded to 127 reported suicide attempts. The suicide statistics also seem to go hand-in-hand with any number of activities which are related to drug and alcohol abuse, domestic violence, and also gang violence. Lalash has a violent history, which included mob violence that once forced RCMP officers to take shelter in the local hospital as their cruiser was burned. Some elders blame troubles on the introduction of bars and liquor stores in the community. Others point to the loss of traditional Dene culture and language. Lalosh and the surrounding Regional Health Authority owned the highest in the province suicide rate of 43.4 suicide deaths per 100,000 people, three and a half times the provincial average. In 2016, Lalosh had limited, if any, resources for mental health and addiction. The Lalosh Community School where the shooting took place is split in two campuses. The Ducharme School is for K-6 students. The Dene High School offers grades 7 to 12. In all, there are about 900 students at the schools. Most are bilingual, speaking Dene and English. There are about 110 staff members between both campuses. Before we get into the timeline and details of January 22, 2016, We want to dedicate this part of the episode to those who lost their lives or were injured on that day. The victims of this shooting were students, 
faculty members, and staff at the Lalash schools. The following people were the four fatalities from the Lalash shooting. In 2016, Adam Wood was 35 years old. He was a teacher at the Dene High School. Adam was from Oxbridge, Ontario, and had just moved to Lalash at the start of the school year in September of 2015. Adam was quite the adventurer. He had a passion for life, and he would often go out of his way to make you laugh until your stomach hurt. He was always up for a good challenge and lived every day joyously. Adam had just started his teaching career. His family said that he was happy and feeling fulfilled in his new career. Adam attended Lakehead University, where he took the Outdoor Recreation, Parks, and Tourism Concurrent Education Program, something that he described as a perfect fit because of his love of nature and adventure. He spent much of his free time outside with the North Shore Telemark Ski School in Thunder Bay and the Outdoor Recreation Society at university. Adam also loved helping others, which would explain his desire to work in the remote community of Lalash. Roots to Harvest, an organization where Adam Wood once worked teaching food sustainability to youth, posted this about him. He did make positive change, not in a grandiose way, that wasn't his style, but one individual at a time. I think everyone will say that about him, that being around Adam was uplifting, and I think that is an amazing impact to have on the world. There are some people out there that hold a light. Adam was one of them. Marie-Jacqueline Janvier was just 21 years old in 2016. Marie began working as a teacher's aide and tutor at the Lalash Community School in September of 2015. She was no stranger to the school or the community. In fact, she had just graduated from the Lalash School two years earlier. She was dedicated to her job and wouldn't miss a day. She had plans to get her teaching degree in the near future. Marie was a lover of animals and volunteered during the wildfires to help relocate dogs that were in harm's way. She was also a great influence on the people around her, with many crediting her for helping them turn their lives around. One person stated that you could travel the whole world and never find another person like Marie. Brothers Dane and Drayden Fontaine were also murdered that day in Lalash. Dane was just 17 years old, Drayden 13. The two brothers were cousins of the shooter and treated him like a brother. The two boys were students at the Lalash school. Drayden Fontaine was known as Lull and liked to ride snowmobiles. His brother Dane Fontaine showed people how to snare animals and tried to teach them the Dene language. Of Dane, one teacher stated, He taught me my first and several more Dene words, taught me to tie a snare and loved sharing his hunting stories. I'll never forget his smile and jokes about how I should name my then unborn son after him. He never failed to make me laugh when he made fun of me trying to repeat Dene words. He taught me more about the North and the Dene culture than I taught him about English and government. Students have a way of stealing your heart and becoming one of your kids. We lost an amazing kid. The two brothers lived in a house with their grandparents where they had spent most of their lives. There were other victims of this shooting whose lives were not lost, but were forever changed. Those victims that are minors are identified only by initials in court documents. 
TH and KJ were 13-year-old students, NLE was a 16-year-old student, and JM a 19-year-old student. Other injured victims were teachers Charlene Klein and Phyllis Longobardi. Christine Moncrand, a teacher's aide, was also injured. The person responsible for this shooting spree was a 17-year-old who also grew up in the community. His name, which was released by the courts, is Randon Dakota Fontaine. Randon Dakota Fontaine was born February 6, 1998. Randon's biological mother is Gail Fontaine. Laura Fontaine is Gail's sister. Laura raised Randon and he considers her as his mother. Throughout his upbringing, he did have contact with Gail, his biological mother. Although they had arguments over minor matters, he described his relationship with Lara as pretty good. Like most kids, he was given chores to do around the house. He did not have any complaints about his upbringing and stated that he was provided with everything that he needed. This comment was confirmed by his grandparents and his aunt Alicia. Both grandparents reported that they seldom said no to Randon and were always willing to give him money or let him use a vehicle when he needed it. Randon felt closest to his grandfather. He described going to his grandparents' house every day and having supper together. He had gone hunting and camping with his grandfather and talked about being given the truck when he wanted to drive. He has a good relationship with his biological mother, Gail, and reported seeing her on a regular basis. He did not have much contact with his father. Randon was a frequent cannabis user who claims to smoke weed several times throughout the week. He does not have any previous criminal convictions, however, by his own admission, he stated that sometimes he would look into cars to see what was inside. Indicators show that Randon had depression and low self-esteem. Randon did struggle in school. In 2016, he was in grade 10 for the third time. Teachers' comments on Randon's report cards are pretty consistent. Here are his teacher's comments from grade one to grade 10. Grade one, enjoys visual experiences, difficulty in concentrating and controlling behavior. Grade two, focusing and listening is a problem. Not putting effort in doesn't participate. Grade three, doesn't pay attention. Grade four, poor effort, given extra periods, won't participate, good visual, pretends not to know what to do. Grade 5. Very smart young man, but not focused and doesn't put effort in. Not finishing assignments, doesn't show persistence. Parents ask to help with homework. Grade 6. Happy, friendly, but not motivated to complete assignments. Wonderful artist. Grade 7. Never attended science class, poor marks except phys ed and home ec. Inappropriate use of class time. Grade 8 putting in more effort but not consistently. Grade nine, more attention, should be focused on learning and less on sleeping, capable of better work. Grade 10, didn't write final exams, missing and incomplete assignments, diminished effort. Grade 10, this was 2014 to 2015, first semester failed every class. A psychoeducational assessment was done in 2006 when Randon was in grade 3. The referral was because of language and academic weakness, 
hyperactivity, and a difficult time paying attention, or daydreaming. Results revealed that Randon was below average in his verbal and nonverbal skills, in the low range for writing, average for reading, and very low in mathematics. Another assessment was done in grade 6 when he was 12 years old. He was at a grade 3 level in reading and a grade 2 level in mathematics. Special education and occupational therapy referrals were made when he was in grade 1. There is no information if any of the recommendations were acted on. In fact, his family stated that they didn't even know that any of these special assessments and testings were happening. His most recent schoolwork in 2016 showed that most of the assignments were incomplete, some not done at all. There were numerous doodles of marijuana plants, guns, and knives. He referred to himself as R. Escobar. Randon liked hanging out with his friends who were in the same grade with him. When asked about the impact of repeating his grade 10, he specifically said he didn't care and it didn't bother me. He said nobody made fun of him or called him names because there were a lot of his friends and students that also repeated. The fact that he repeated a class three times did not make him feel bad, and he said he did not feel singled out or demeaned by others. One forensic psychiatrist reported that Randon felt that he was normal and unaffected by the difficulties he experienced academically. He said that he did not feel psychologically abnormal. What he really enjoyed in the past was just hanging out with his friends, playing video games, and smoking cannabis. And he did love to play video games. In fact, he would often go across the street to his cousins, Drayden and Dane's house, to play. In the days before the shooting, Randon began to do some research on the internet about guns and killing. On January 7th, 2016, between 3.18 p.m. and 4.17 p.m., using his iPhone, Randon searched various gun and ammunition classes, including the searches 308 versus 30 6 458 versus SOCOM ammo, 700 Nitro Express ammo, on January 19, 2016, at 5.15 p.m., Randon used his iPhone to take a two-second video and two photographs of a 22 caliber rifle and a shotgun. The photos of the firearms show them to be on a bed with a flower blanket. On January 20th, 2016 at 10.30 p.m. using his iPad, Randon searched 30-06 versus human. Then on January 21st, 2016, the day before the shootings, Randon attended school in the afternoon. After school was done, he got high smoking cannabis, and then at 4 p.m. using his iPad, he searched school shootings in Canada. On the night before the shootings, January 21st, 2016, during the evening, Randon went across the street to 341 Dene Crescent, where he visited and played video games with his cousins, Dane and Drayden. During this visit, Randon learned that his cousin's mother, Alicia Fontaine, would be at work and out of town the next day. Additionally, he learned that his grandparents would also be leaving Laloche the next morning and would be away for the day. Later that evening, Randon used his iPad for some nefarious online activity. At 9.16pm, he accessed an online article about, What does it feel like to kill someone? 
At 9.21 p.m., he searched Ask Reddit with, to anyone who has, what does it feel like to take someone's life? At 9.22 p.m., he searched what it is like after the gun goes off. At 9.24 p.m., he searched killing a family member and accessed a webpage or article about, am I more likely to kill an intruder or a family member with a gun in my house? At 9.44 p.m., he accessed a Wikipedia entry about familicide, the term for murdering family. At 9.45 p.m., he accessed a Wikipedia entry about fratricide, the term for murdering a brother. He then stopped his online searches and went to bed. Then, on January 22, 2016, Brandon woke up. He met up with his cousins, Drayden and Dane, and the three of them then went to school. Brandon attended his morning classes. He did not consume any substances that day. At 11.15, using his iPhone, Brandon accessed websites about Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the Columbine High School shooters. Just before noon, Randon spoke to Alex Mendez, a teacher, about his poor grades. They agreed to meet later that day. There are no indications that this upset Randon. In fact, he would later state that it didn't. At lunchtime, Randon, Dane, and Drayden went home for lunch. Dane ate lunch alone at home. Drayden went down the street to another house. Randon ate lunch across the street at his own home. While at home, Randon grabbed some ammunition that he had stored in his bedroom. He then went across the street to where Dane was eating lunch. Randon grabbed a 22 caliber rifle from the basement. He waited in the basement and began calling Dane's name, stating that it was time to go to school. Randon then stated from the basement, Dane, come here. 17-year-old Dane made his way down the stairs and said, What are you doing? Brandon raised his weapon and pointed it at his cousin Dane. Dane stated, Don't shoot me. Brandon fired one shot, which hit Dane. Dane ran up the stairs to get away from Brandon, but Brandon followed. Brandon pursued Dane and shot him multiple times in the back. Dane fell to the kitchen floor. Brandon stood over Dane, who at this point told Brandon that he did not want to die. Randon fired another shot into Dane's head. In total, Dane was shot 11 times. Dane would die from his injuries inside the house. But this spree shooting does not end here. Randon Fontaine was about to become a school shooter, like the ones he had researched that morning. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And we are back. Before the break, we laid out the timeline leading up to, as well as the start of the Lalash school shootings. Randon Fontaine had researched and planned this day. In the morning, while at school, he researched the Columbine shooters. Then at lunch, he shot and killed his 17-year-old cousin, Dane Fontaine. After shooting Dane, Randon then went back downstairs to get a more powerful rifle to take to school. He found and loaded a Remington 30-06 pump-action rifle. While attempting to cycle the ammunition from the magazine clip to the chamber, the mechanism jammed. For this reason, he decided not to use that weapon and instead grabbed a shotgun. He then went back into Dane's room to get shotgun shells. He searched around and found the keys for his aunt's half-ton truck. He then took the shotgun outside and put it in the back portion of the cab of the truck. As he was doing this, he noticed his cousin, Drayden, running towards the truck. Drayden asked for a ride back to school and asked where Dane was. Randon told Drayden to follow him into the house. Randon ran ahead to get the rifle with which he had shot Dane. Once inside the house, Randon heard Drayden calling out for Dane. Randon said to Drayden, come here. When Drayden went up the stairs from the entry, Randon shot him once in the face and again in the head. Drayden was lying on the floor and was barely breathing. Randon pointed the gun at his head. Drayden tried to cover his head with his hands and made the comment about not wanting to die. At this point, Randon recalls thinking, what the fuck am I doing? What the fuck did I just do? And described it like a bad dream and he wanted to wake up, but it was all real. Randon remembers he was feeling panicky and full of adrenaline. Randon then went back upstairs after retrieving the shotgun to take to school. He took Dane's phone out of Dane's pocket and turned it off as Randon did not want anyone to try and contact Dane. Drayden died from his injuries inside the residence. Before leaving the residence, Randon saw Dane and Drayden's shoes by the front door. He moved their shoes towards the wall so that no one could see them. At approximately 1 p.m., Randon left the house and drove his aunt's truck to the school. At 1.01 p.m., while driving to school, Randon used his iPhone and accessed a Facebook Messenger group. Inside that chat, he wrote the following, Sup, I'm done with life. His friend Darius then responded, Why, ears, why? Randon then wrote, Just killed two people, about to shoot up the school. Dane and Lull are dead, bros. At approximately 1.02 p.m., Randon arrived at the school parking lot. Armed with multiple firearms, Randon sat in his aunt's pickup truck in the parking lot of the Lalosh school. At 1.04 p.m., he walked to the front entrance of the school. He entered the school and looked around the common area. He then went back out. While leaving, he encountered three friends in the front entrance, but did not speak with them. He walked back to the truck. At 1.05 p.m., he took out the shotgun. 
With the shotgun in hand and ammunition in his pockets, he walked to the front entrance to the school. That afternoon, there were approximately 150 students and teachers in the school. Upon seeing Randon, students at the main entrance and common area of the school started to disperse and run away. Teacher Adam Wood ran from the common area into the main office. He immediately called 911 and was able to leave a short but urgent message with the call taker. Inside of the school, Randon started shooting. In the foyer of the main entrance, he shot and wounded three students. He first shot one student who was struck primarily in the left chest and arm. He then shot another who was struck primarily in the chest and right arm. And then another who was struck primarily in the left abdomen and left calf. At 1.06 p.m., Randon entered the common area of the school and shot in the general direction of Vice Principal Phyllis Longobardi. She was not hit. He aimed more directly at her and shot again. This time, she was hit on her right forearm and wrist. She ran into a nearby classroom, closed the door, called police, and the elementary school to tell them to lock down their building. Finally, she called the Northern Lights School Division to tell them what was happening. Randon pointed the shotgun back towards the main entrance and shot through the main entrance foyer at another student who was just outside the front doors of the school. The shot shattered the glass portion of the interior front door. She was hit in the left arm, left buttock, and left leg. Randon continued to walk around the common area briefly. He then shot out a window to the vice principal's office and went into the general office area. He encountered Adam Wood. Randon shot him twice. The first shot was to Mr. Wood's right torso at close range. He immediately fell to the floor. Randon shot him again as he lay wounded on the floor. At 1.07 p.m., Randon continued to make his way through the school looking for other people to shoot. As part of this process, he was checking various doors, but fortunately, they were locked. At 1.07, he shot through the glass portion of a closed door. Charlene Klein, a teacher, was at her desk facing the door, working with a student. She was hit primarily in her face, neck, and chest. Marie Janvier, who was helping a student, immediately came to the assistance of Miss Klein. Randon walked away from this classroom for approximately 40 seconds and then returned. At 1.08 p.m., he fired a second shot through the already damaged door. Miss Klein was hit yet again, as was Marie Janvier. Marie Janvier was shot in the neck and chest. She died instantly. He continued to walk around the hallways. At 1.09, he encountered the Dene language teacher, Ida Lamegra. She briefly opened the door of the classroom in which she had fled. She saw Randon, and recognizing him as a student, she called for him to come to her for refuge. Then she saw the gun he was carrying. Realizing he was the shooter, she immediately retreated into the classroom and locked the door. He did not try to shoot her or gain entry into that classroom. Seconds later, Randon saw another student running in the hallway. Randon ran after the student but was unable to catch him. The student was able to jump down some stairs and escape out a side exit door. Randon followed him all the way to the door, opened it, but did not follow outside or shoot at him. 
Randon then walked to classroom 107, where at 1.10 p.m. he fired one shot through the window portion of the classroom door. Christy Montgrand, a faculty member, was struck in the back. Randon returned to the common area, briefly went into the main entrance foyer, returned to the common area, and then went back to the foyer where he looked outside. He went back into the common area and at 1.11 p.m. shot out a large glass display case. He meandered around the common area for approximately 40 seconds, took out his iPhone, looked at it, and threw it on the floor. At 1.11 p.m., Constable Dustin Freeman entered the school. Randon was still in the common area, but when he saw the officer, he ran away and hid in the women's washroom at approximately 1.12 p.m. Constable Freeman pursued Randon and searched the hallways for him as other officers began arriving. At approximately 1.15 p.m., Randon was seen exiting the washroom. Randon confirmed to the officer the loaded shotgun was in the washroom. He said he contemplated committing suicide and the shotgun was leaning against the sink counter. As he exited the washroom, he told the police officers, I'm the shooter. At 1.16 p.m., Randon Fontaine was arrested. The shotgun was found where he said it would be. There was one shotgun shell left in the chamber. Police officers searched the entire school to ensure there were no other perpetrators. This process took about 28 minutes. While being escorted out of the school, Randon pointed out his iPhone on the floor. He said to the officer, you should check my house. When the officer asked what he would see there, Randon responded, my brothers. RCMP officers had to break into the residence where the shootings began as both front and back doors were locked. Dane and Drayden were found inside, both deceased. At the residence, police calculated that 17 shots were fired from a Mossberg International 22 caliber rifle. Dane was struck by 11 shots, Drayden by two. Drayden was on his back near the top of the stairs with visible trauma to his face. His autopsy report revealed that one bullet entered through the right cheek and punctured into the right temporal bone. The second bullet entered through the back of the head. Death was a result of brain injury. Dane was found near the couch in the living room area laying on his right side. There was injury to internal organs including the brain, heart, and lungs. The weapon used was leaning against the wall by the front door. It was still loaded. The rifle that had jammed was found downstairs. Three other rifles were found downstairs and six in a cabinet. Ammunition was located throughout the basement area. At the school, Marie Janvier was deceased with visible injuries to her neck and chest area. According to the autopsy report, Miss Janvier suffered significant injuries to her jugular veins, aorta, lungs, and her heart. Death would have been instantaneous. Adam Wood was taken to the Lalash Health Center, but he had no pulse and was not breathing at the scene. His autopsy revealed injuries sustained from close-range and intermediate-range shotgun wounds. Cause of death was gunshot wounds to the chest and abdomen. The following is a list of the other victims and their injuries. TH was a 13-year-old. She was medevaced to Saskatoon following intubation at the Lalash Hospital. 
She underwent three major surgeries for vein grafting, pinning, and plating broken bones, wound debridement, and a tracheotomy. She continues to have shotgun pellets that cannot be removed due to their medically dangerous placement. She has scarring, sun sensitivity, and nerve damage from her wounds. She was placed in a medically induced coma. Total hospitalization was from January 22, 2016 to March 8, 2016, both in Saskatchewan and in British Columbia. She continues to require extensive medical follow-up. NLE, 16 years old, was sent to Saskatoon Royal University Hospital with nerve, artery, muscle, and bone damage. He underwent three major surgeries for plating and screw placements to repair broken bones, chest tube placement, debridement, nerve reconstruction, and skin grafting. He has permanent nerve damage to his left arm. He was hospitalized from January 22, 2016 to February 12, 2016. JM, a 19-year-old student, was shot on her left side. X-rays taken revealed shotgun pellets in her left hip, femur, and humerus. She was medevaced to hospital. Charlene Klein, a teacher, suffered injuries to her head and neck. Both eyes were injured. She had broken teeth from the gunshot to her face. She was flown to hospital. She has permanent optic nerve damage with blindness in one eye and drastically reduced vision in the other. She had damage to her left hemothorax and damage to her left chest wall. She has had four major surgeries to date. The prognosis for her vision is not a positive one. Phyllis Longobardi, the vice principal, suffered a gunshot wound to the right forearm and abdomen. She was sent to hospital on January 24, 2016 by ambulance. Debridement of the forearm was performed and pellets were removed from her right wrist. Christy Montgrand, a teacher's aide, had multiple puncture wounds from shotgun pellets and broken glass, mainly to her left side. She was medevaced on January 22, 2016. She underwent two major surgeries to repair her stomach and liver. Her spleen was removed. She had a kidney hemorrhage and required a chest tube for a left pneumothorax. She was hospitalized from January 22 to February 2, 2016. KJ, a 13-year-old, was taken by car to hospital on January 23, 2016. She had shotgun pellets in her left calf. Her wounds were cleansed and treated with antibiotics. She was discharged from hospital. In the hours after the shooting, the village of Laloche was descended upon by investigators, journalists, and politicians. Here is the Laloche mayor speaking to reporters. Hi, Kevin Jenver, Laloche mayor. The horrific event that took place in Laloche, Saskatchewan on January 22, 2016 is now known around the world. We would like to thank everyone everywhere for the outpouring of support that we have received. We are hurting and, and we will be for, for months to come. Laloche is a beautiful community filled with beautiful people. We are strong and we will rebuild our hope. Once the media coverage the windows, the Lalage fades from the months of news people. We urge those at the provincial level and the federal level not to forget us. As Lalage, we will never forget January 22nd, 2016. 
What do you want well, Personally, I want that school to be rebuilt. Torn down, rebuilt, the whole new structure. Why do you want that to happen? Well, because of the trauma that happened on, on January 22nd of 2016. As we just heard in that audio clip, the mayor and people of Lalosh asked the government for help that they would need to rebuild and recover from this horrific tragedy. All across Canada, people were stunned and affected by this story. But there was one undeniable truth. Randon had acted alone in a premeditated attack at a school in northern Saskatchewan. There was much legal wrangling that went on over the course of years. The courts needed to decide if Randon, who was 17 years old at the time of the crime, therefore a minor, should stand trial as an adult. Then, if convicted, should he be sentenced as an adult or as a youth? In October of 2016, Randon entered a guilty plea on two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of second-degree murder, and seven counts of attempted murder. As a result of this guilty plea, there would be no trial, but there would be a sentencing hearing. Randon's attorneys relied on expert witnesses to put forth that Randon suffered from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and that he has cognitive problems that have affected his maturity levels. His lawyers argued that he should be sentenced as a youth, which would carry a much lighter sentence. The Crown disagreed. The prosecution was seeking a life sentence with no possibility of parole for 10 years. The judge weighed a lot of expert testimony, witness accounts, education records, and the testimony of the arresting officers. All of the evidence was impactful, but nothing could be more impactful than the 52 victim impact statements that were entered into evidence. Of those impact statements, the judge wrote the following. Time does not allow me to go through each statement one at a time. That in no way diminishes the importance of these victim impact statements. All people affected have a right to explain, not only to the court, but to Randon Fontaine as well, the impact his actions have had on them and on the wider community. Parents have lost their children, friends and families have lost loved ones, Teachers have lost colleagues. Students have lost dedicated teachers and close friends. The community has lost committed, productive members. Injured survivors are living with permanent physical and psychological scars. Some still have shotgun pellets inside their bodies that cannot be removed because it is medically too dangerous. They carry within their bodies a constant reminder of their terrible experience. Marriages and relationships have crumbled from the stress of survivor's guilt and or having a partner not able to fully understand and comprehend the stress, pain, and fear of simply still being alive. Friendships have been lost or altered negatively for the same reasons. Professional careers have ended due to fear of being in a classroom and a shooter suddenly appearing at the classroom door. Individuals are paralyzed by fear, anger, physical and psychological pain with the realization that they do not have the inner strength to put their hearts and minds into the teaching community anymore. The community has lost citizens because it is too stressful and hurtful to stay in a place that is a constant reminder of those who were killed or how closely they themselves came to being killed. The judge continues on to say, students who previously enjoyed and were engaged with their school 
no longer want to go to school. Some are drinking. Some have turned to drugs. Some simply dropped out and do not care about their future anymore. Some affected students and teachers have either attempted or contemplated suicide. All require counseling which, for the most part, has ceased inexcusably because there is no further funding. Sadly, most victims cannot afford to pay for their own counseling, so they go without. Plans for a well-deserved peaceful retirement following a long career may never be fulfilled because of ongoing physical and psychological effects. Many have been diagnosed with or are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Those who I had the privilege to hear in person while their statements were read are truly the walking wounded. I fear their lives will never be the same. As for the larger community of Lalache, its members continue to heroically face the aftermath. Sadly, drug usage, alcohol usage, and concerns of suicide in the community have all increased. The judge concluded that a youth sentence was not appropriate for such crimes and that the defense had not proved their case for a lesser sentence. In February of 2018, Randon Dakota Fontaine was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 10 years. In October of 2019, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal dismissed his appeal where his lawyers again argued that he should not be sentenced as an adult. In April of 2020, the Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear his appeal. Randon Fontaine, now 23 years old, has no avenues left for appeal. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau pledged that $2.2 million would be spent over five years to help the community of Laloche. In 2017, one year after the terrible tragedy that hit Laloche, I had the chance to sit down with 10 remarkable young people from this community. And we had a conversation that stuck with me because I remember being struck by their resilience, by their determination to make a positive difference in the world. These young women and men refused to let their dreams be extinguished by a senseless moment of violence. When faced with tragedy, they responded with hope, with a will to make things better. When I was here in 2016, I told this community, the students, teachers, parents, friends, that we were standing behind you, that all of Canada was supporting you as you healed. So when you asked for more help, our government listened and responded. We're investing in new programs and resources for Dene High School, funding cultural and language-based programs, on-the-land activities, and mental health services for students. This is about listening to you. After all, you are best placed to know what your school community needs. So this investment of more than $2.2 million over five years will help Dene High School begin to write a new chapter. The following is the audio from a video created by the students of Laloche thanking Canada for being there for them. We want to thank you. We want to thank everybody that donated and helped Laloche with our grieving process from the tragic event that took place on January 22nd. We would like to thank the firefighters, policemen, paramedics, counselors, and everyone else that helped us through the grieving process. 
the money we have received from the generous donations from the people around the world helped us start a breakfast program for the staff and students. We bought new gym equipment for the students, so the money is being put to good use. There are several sports that are new for the community to come out and play. There is soccer and softball happening every day after school. The children are participating, so that's a good sign. This is all thanks to everybody that donated. For the people that donated the gifts, we appreciate every bit of it. We received multiple items such as stuffed animals, letters, handcrafted posters, and many more. We as a community are getting stronger as each day progresses, and we are getting closer and uniting as one. Our community would like to say that Lalash isn't a dark, isolated place. Our community comes together on local events like our annual Culture Day, which helps us celebrate our history. The support we have received from the world made a great big impact when we needed it the most. That's why we are thanking you for your generous help. Mercy cho, As we approach the sixth anniversary of the Lalash shootings, it's important for all Canadians to know what happened that day. In the years since the shootings, the court systems played out in a way that ended with a conviction and a sentencing. Government money, services, and donations from the public have attempted to help a once ignored region of the country. Forgiveness has also occurred with family and community members publicly forgiving Randon for his actions that day. Most importantly, the surviving victims and the people of Lalash have begun to heal from an unimaginable tragedy. Lalash Mayor Robert St. Pierre said that the court decision is the decision that he and many in the community wanted, but it doesn't solve everything. Quote, We've still got hurt people. We still have people that are angry and upset. And it's still something that we've got to live with. St. Pierre said that he hopes the community can move on. Quote, the community needs to start looking at ourselves and what we are doing currently and start building on our strengths. We have a lot of strengths in this community. We need to believe that we can do better and that we will be better. The one aspect that was never uncovered was a motive for the tragedy. Randon was not bullied. He was not an outsider. He had friends. He had family. The only real explanation came on the day of the shooting. When Randon was first arrested, he told officers that he regretted shooting the two brothers, Dane and Drayden, and that they weren't part of the plan. When asked what his plan was, he responded, Go to the school and shoot the fucking kids. When he was asked who he was targeting, he said, nobody. We would like to thank you for joining us on this episode of True North True Crime. Our producers on the podcast are Sean D., Clint, Shandy, Jimmy H., Jessa, Sarah B.W., Lisa Marie, Amy's Book Reviews, Thomas E., Susan S., Alex and Andrea P., Kennedy, Alberta, Cindy McDee, Blair M., Alyssa S., CJ Gize, Anastasia, Ariel E., Melanie E., Kelly D., Carolyn M., Emily L., Jason D., Jimmy H., Tiffany C., Keith R., Mari M., 
Lorena, Queen Nebula, Maureen, Jesse DR, Louise Rickshaw, and of course, the Missing and Unexplained podcast. We will be back soon with a new episode, so until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.